Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Sounds a little different out there. It's super quiet in that little cage. So. We are starting a new study this morning through the book of Malachi, or as some have liked to call him, the Italian prophet, Malachi. If you haven't heard that joke, yeah, you haven't been at church. (laughs) It's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, At the Mountain Church, we like to preach through the Bible in in verse-by-verse sections. And we think the Bible is the only thing that uh, we can cling to, the only thing that we can bank on, uh, the only true authority that's in our life. So we, we preach it. We believe, as the Bible says in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All of God's word. So we want to we wanna look at all of God's word. And we preach the word at the Mountain Church. This is what we want to devote ourselves to. This is what kind of shapes our, our worship, our Sunday gatherings. And we don't just get this because uh, this, is what, this is what we think churches should do, or this is kind of a, a cultural thing that we believe uh, preaching, preaching is important, or this is something that I really like to have my uh, people for 45 minutes to an hour focus on me so they have to hear me talk. I really want to hear myself speak or have people listen to me. This is not why we preach the word. We preach the word because I think God's words command us to. It says in 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. In other words, when we get together, it's not just everyone kind of gets in a circle and we discuss what we feel the passage means. There's preaching. There's exhortation. And this comes all the way back from the beginning of the church. There's a guy named uh, Justin Martyr who wrote in AD 150. So a long time ago, he wrote that on the Lord's day, on the day called Sunday, that all who live in cities are in the country gathered together in one place and the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Might do that today. Uh, just As long as time permits. Then when... Uh, the reader has finished, the president speaks, instructing and exhorting the people to imitate these good things. So in other words, Paul and the early church confirmed that someone would read the scriptures. That's why we read the scriptures. Public reading of the scriptures, and then someone would preach it. Someone would uh, explain or, or apply what this preaching means to our lives, and that's what we're going to be doing uh, God willing, the rest of our life as a church. And this is what we're going to be doing through uh, the prophet Malachi. So before we get into the the verses one through five, I I want to look at the context, the background. Why did Malachi write this? As this really helps and and shapes the way that we read the scriptures. So who wrote wrote this book? It says in Malachi 1.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, some scholars argue that since the word Malachi just means my messenger, that Malachi is not a proper name, it's just 
just means messenger. Uh, but the majority of scholars, however, agree that Malachi was his actual name. It was a proper name. And Malachi is the one who, who God speaks and is the, the source, the, uh, the guy who penned this book, Malachi. Malachi is one of, he's the last of what uh, theologians call minor prophets. You see how your, your Bibles are organized? There's the major prophets and then come 12 minor prophets, which ends the Old Testament. So uh, the minor prophets would include Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Uh, the major prophets would include Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And what Malachi does is he kind of follows the normal pattern of the prophets, and he introduces himself in, in the opening lines, Malachi. Well, when was this written? When did this take place? This took place about 4, 460 B.C. This was, this was taken place in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, this would have been the middle of the 5th century B.C. It would have been several years after the Israelites had returned to, uh, to Judah under permission of King Cyrus in 538 B.C. Uh, after they were allowed to return home after they had been exiled by Babylon to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. This is the context. And we'll see uh, throughout the letter why uh, God gave this word to Malachi. Malachi's prophetic ministry was in response to explicit rebellion against God's command, a mocking of his law. Um, the, the Israelites had made compromise. They had become dead in their worship. Their leaders were leading people. It's a call to repentance. They had gotten half-hearted. They had gotten callous in their worship. And we'll see service towards God. Their offerings, their priests. Uh, the people had gotten the Jews, the Israelites, to covenant blessing would happen. That the new Jerusalem take place, we would establish a new Jerusalem, Israel would return to grace. About a hundred years. Initially, they had kind of responded to a foreign hard hearted. Against God. And this is why Malachi writes to God. I believe specifically that God has laid on my heart to us this call to sin in history. Uh, that it seems many in the American and myself, we found ourselves in kind of a, a routine, uh, a dead, a callousness. We look at the statistics of those inside and outside the church, uh, they kind of behave almost identical. You look at uh, pornography numbers, you look at giving numbers, and sadly, the statistics of those inside and outside the church is not much different. So Malachi, I think, is very relevant to us today, relevant to our church. Uh, divorce rates are... The same inside and outside the church, for the most part, biblical steward and joyful giving are becoming less and less of a practice. And I hope and trust that God is taking us through Malachi uh, to continue to wake us up, to bring us closer to God, to shape our thoughts. Uh, one commentator named Robert L. Alden said, Today, it's timeless truths of Malachi with the prophet's plea for sincerity and holiness are as relevant as they ever were. One of the things that you'll notice as we go through Malachi is that uh, there's almost kind of a, a sarcastic tone. The genre is uh, satiric almost. And I think God is doing this to, to again kind of show the people's foolishness. So you'll see as we go through this book that there's a question that comes up. 
that, that Malachi is kind of presenting as the people would have. And then God responds to that question. Or God asks the question himself and responds to that question, trying to get his people to see their foolishness, to get them to, to come back. He reiterates and repeats uh, a call to repentance again and again. My people, come back to me. So that's kind of the context in the background. If you'd uh, like more information, I'd really recommend uh, getting a study Bible if you don't have one. Uh, the ESV study Bible has great introductions and outlines and, and dates and all kinds of things that are really helpful in, when, you st- when you're studying God's Word. I also have uh, commentaries that I'd love to share with you if you're curious more about uh, the context and the background. Uh, but that's briefly what I wanted to go over before we jump into the text. So if you haven't already, uh, Malachi 1, 1 through 5. Says there, the oracle of the word of the Lord. Now, what is an oracle? Is this that uh, multinational computer technology company? That, that's kind of what I came to mind, oracle. What does oracle mean? Now, uh, some scholars think that uh, this oracle could be better translated as burden or load. Some, however, argue that this is a a homonym. You know what one of those is? It's a word that sounds just like similar, but it has a different meaning, a different connotation. Homonyms make great jokes. They make great puns. Some of you might know that I I love a good pun. I thought I'd share just some of my favorites that I saw this week. Uh, The waiter comes up uh, and takes an order. The guy orders pancakes. Um, It's been a long time. The guy's getting impatient. He wants his pancakes. The waiter comes by. He says, waiter, will the pancakes be long? And the waiter responds, no, sir, they'll be round. (laughs) No? Okay. How about another one? You guys know how to make a sausage roll? Push it. Get it? Roll. Okay, we know these are dumb. But this is an example of a homonym. So some scholars think that... uh, when historically that word oracle has been translated burden, that that's a, a homonym. Uh, but what, what I think the, the meaning is getting at here is that there's a, a pressing uh, word, a weight from God, a pronouncement. The word is directly to God by Malachi. This literally could be by the hand of Malachi. And God opens right out of the gate, verse 2, I have Loved you. This is how he opens this book. Why would the book of Malachi begin with this? Why would, God, why would he open with God's affirmation of love for his people? Because this is the basis of the letter. This is the basis of repentance. This is the, the basis of waking up. Because without a, a proper understanding of God's love, uh, you'll kind of be kind of you'll be dysfunctional as one of God's people. Spiritual growth, spiritual health happens as we grow in our delight, our understanding, our appreciation of God's love. And we see right at the beginning that the Israelites were questioning this. See this, they say, but you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us, God? Ever asked this question? God, don't you love me? How have you loved me? 
people had allowed difficulties and impatience on God's covenant blessings to question, to doubt, and to dismiss God's love. They, they had a sense of ingratitude towards God's love. They were not thankful. Their, their beliefs on how God's love would play out in their life didn't line up with reality. It didn't line up with their thoughts, their ideas of how they thought it should play out. So they were confused. Ever had this happen? Our idea of how God's love should play out in our life doesn't line up with reality. Oftentimes in my immaturity, instead of thinking, hmm, I wonder if I have a good understanding of God's love because it's not playing out how I thought. That's not what I do. I go immediately to questioning. Bad things happen. Someone gives me a critique. Stephanie doesn't give me the love that I feel like I deserve. Someone cuts me off and then flips me off while I'm driving. That's kind of a, I don't know why I just thought of that. That's a weird example. I'm sorry about that. But you all get, something bad happens in your life and you go to questioning. And like self-centered children who took God's love for granted, Judah had become blind to it. And they responded to God's discipline with, you don't love me. Because they didn't appreciate and delight and acknowledge God's love, love, it led to rebellion, it led to callousness, it led to immorality, it led to greed, it led to injustice. And I would argue that if you do this in your life as well, if you take for granted, if it becomes callous to you, if it doesn't floor you, then watch out. God goes on to show his people that his love for them has been abundant in verses three through four. His promise is in verse five that one day they would no longer doubt. In verse two, it says, I have loved you. The people question, how have you loved us? And then God answers, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. If you've never heard this verse before, this might kind of throw you, for one. God hates people? Does God hate people? This love in this instance uh, and hatred refers more along the lines of, of election, of choosing. So when, he, when God is referring to, I have loved Jacob, it refers to he has chosen him. When it says, yet Esau I have hated, it means that he has rejected him. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Esau were two brothers. They were sons of a guy named Isaac. And although Esau was the older brother, the one who would uh, traditionally be established the blessing and the inheritance, God chose Jacob, the younger brother, to have a unique, special role in history. God chose Jacob to continue the lineage of the covenant promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that through you all nations would be blessed. Jacob later gets uh, renamed, he gets given the name by God of Israel. And from Israel come the Israelites. And throughout our Old Testament, Israel has a special, unique, exclusive relationship with God through the Old Testament. God rescues and redeems Israel from slavery in Egypt. God gives Israel his commandments, his law, and God blesses Israel 
so that they would be a blessing. God blesses Israel and chooses Israel so that they would uh, be his representative. I've said this before, but uh, God doesn't have cho- choice people. He has chosen people. They were, there's a specific task that he has for, uh, for Christians, for the Israelites in this instance. And this choice of the Israelites in Jacob was not based on any condition. Jacob or Esau, it was God's sovereign and free choice. This is what we read and see in, in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 7, God is speaking to his people and he says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it is not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. So God chose Jacob, God chose the Israelites not because of anything good in them. If you're wondering, okay, Daniel, God chose Jacob, hated Esau, what gives? Why did God choose Jacob? Because he loved him. Not based on anything that Jacob had done. It was unconditional. This promise that that God had given Jacob and his people ultimately came in fruition, this blessing that you're going to be my representative, that through you nations are going to be blessed, we know ultimately comes into fruition in Jesus. And God's election, God's sovereign choice of Jacob foreshadows God's sovereign, unconditional election of his people, all those who are in Christ, who are continue in this lineage, those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the, one of the verses that the Apostle Paul uses and describes the special love God has for his elect. If you'd like to study more about this, it's found in, in, in Romans 9. This is a verse that Paul kind of bases his argument on. Uh, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 and, and 3, the beginning of verse 3. And this same election, this same love that God has for Jacob is the same love that we can rest in, that we can delight in today. God's love that he set upon us, that it's not based on anything that we've done, but it's solely in his grace. Expounding upon this, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose, in other words, saying elected, us in him before the foundation of the world. Nothing you can do, there's nothing you can do or will do that will lose God's unconditional uh, love that he set upon you. We see this because it happened before the foundation of the world. Before sin. Sin cannot remove his love from you. If you are a Christian this morning, God has, was not taken off guard by your sin. You weren't a plan B. You weren't an accident. He saved you because he wanted you, because he loved you. This is the truth of Malachi that I love, that I wanted to expound on this morning. God unconditionally elects his people in love. This is a doctrine that we can cling to and cherish, that we can hold to. If you are a Christian here this morning, know that you are a Christian because God loves you and has chosen you. 
Like with Jacob and Israel, it wasn't something about you. It wasn't something because you were great and strong and mighty or worthy. You were chosen because he loves you. A love that he has given you not because you were lovely, but so that he could make you lovely. A love that makes you lovely. So when we think about this doctrine, this unconditional election, this reality that there's nothing in me, there was nothing in Jacob, there was nothing in Israel that God chose them, that we were not greater, that we were not worthier, that we were not somehow smarter or, or more enlightened, that it's simply by his grace and love, this should floor us. This should lead to worship. Does this do us for that this morning? When you think that, well, I'm a Christian because I, I'm smarter than those lost people. When you think that you're a Christian because I had more faith, I was better, I was somehow less defiled by sin. This leads to pride. This leads to self-righteousness. This leads to arrogance. It is only grace. The Bible says that when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive. While we were corpses, God loved us and made us alive. While we were enemies, though we were once children of wrath, God loved us. And this unconditional election is what Malachi is getting at, is what he's basing his argument on. If Israel really understood and delighted in and cherished God's sovereign love, it would transform everything. It would transform the way they lived, the way they worshiped, their relationships. It would bring unmatched humility as they would realize that it was nothing in them that was lovely and everything ultimately belongs to God. It would destroy and shatter this sense of uh, entitlement or ingratitude that they had, that they had uh, formed or had hardened their hearts. This is what the doctrinal election should do this morning if you call yourself a Christian. It should lead to greater worship and greater humility. Wonder, wow, God save me, God loves me. A salvation that I cannot claim. It was anything based on what I did, not my works. It will lead to a feeling of owing everything to God. Like I said, it will lead to great humility in our life. The knowledge that you have been chosen by God for an intimate relationship and that God will always act in accordance with that relationship should make a profound difference in the way we live, profound difference in the way we face disappointment and struggles and trials and tribulations, yet sadly, they had forgotten this. In the midst of suffering and trials, they had questioned and rejected God's love. In verse three through four, God is giving them evidence of his love, his grace, his covenant blessing, his kindness, his patience, by oddly enough, pronouncing judgment and showing his destruction. It says in verse three, Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country. I have left his inheritance to jackals of the desert. If Edom, now Edom was the nation that descended from Esau, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear them down. They will be called the wicked country, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. I know right now, 
this, this reality, this, even this word might kind of make you uncomfortable. If you've been kind of sold a bill of goods where the Bible is just about, oh God, God's love, and this is kind of like green meadows that we dance in, and there's no holiness, there's no wrath, there's no anger, this is gonna make you really uncomfortable. God is angry? Forever? I mean, I thought he was gracious and compassionate and patient. Is that just me? When I read this, I wonder, man, that's strong. Is it not? What do we do with this? The Bible is clear that God, God is angry at the wicked. That God is ang- that God has anger and wrath for sinners. But Daniel, I thought we were supposed to hate the sin and love the sinner. Doesn't God love sinners? In a sense, but he also hates them. He also abhors them. Listen to what the Bible says. Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, I I can't get into the theological complexities of this, the two wills of God. Uh, I'll, I'll love to send out resources about that in a sense that God does love sinners, but then the other sense he also abhors them. But we need to be clear about this. There's, a, there's a, a guy who I listened to a sermon on this week, a guy named David Platt, who says, sin, the, people, the things that are in hell is not just sin, it's actually it's people. People are sent to hell. So when it comes to our, this, this idea or this, this verse in here of God's anger that makes us a little uncomfortable, we have to come to the scriptures and let them shape our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions, our opinions. We have to come to the scriptures and let it shape and mold us. Isaiah says in, in chapter 55, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, and my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We can't come to uh, this verse and say, well, uh, that's, that makes me uncomfortable. God's, the idea of God being angry, I don't like that. So that's not what it means. Our thoughts on love, our thoughts on God, have to come from the scriptures. We have to be continually informing and transforming our minds. This is what Paul writes in, in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So this morning, some of the things that I've said already, his electing love, his anger, his wrath towards sinners, his hatred of evildoers, this justice and destruction that he will uh, lay out to Edom makes you uncomfortable. I would encourage you to, to shape your thoughts on what the scriptures say. Because Edom was a pagan nation. And other prophets in the, in the scriptures, other prophets in our Bible note their pride, their greed, their violence, and their wickedness. 
even in fact played a part in God's destruction of Israel. So again, I've said that in verses three through four, God is reminding his people, he's proving, he's showing his love for them. But that doesn't really make sense because he's talking about destruction of Edom, at least in my mind. It didn't at first. How is verses three through four God proving his love for Israel? How is reminding them of destruction and promising destruction and wickedness showing his love for Israel? Because in so doing, it's showing the grace and the kindness and the compassion that he's shown on Israel. Israel, who deserved nothing from him. Israel, who had turned their back on him, who had become wicked. Israel, who, would it not been for God's grace and compassion, would be in the same state as Edom for their wickedness. Would it not been for God's sovereign love, it would be the same fate for them. In showing his judgment and desolation of Edom, God is showing his merciful love to the Israelites. In showing what happens to those who are not covered by his mercy, he's showing the Israelites how they are covered by his mercy and love. Does that make sense? And this proper response should be one of praise. Praise of God, you kept us alive. God, you've had compassion on us. God, even as we're rebelling against you, you haven't destroyed us. This is what God is getting at in his promise in verse five. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. One day your response to my unfailing love and mercy upon you, my display upon judgment of your enemies will lead you to praise me, to say, great are you, Lord. One commentator said the point of verse five is that someday in repentant Israel will see God's judgment on his enemies and will praise God for the greatness of his covenant faithfulness and sovereign power. That people beyond the border of Israel will see his greatness. This is the first introduction of one of Malachi's theme in, in this book, the sovereignty of God. That God is not just the God of Israel, He's not just the Lord of Israel. He's the Lord of everything. He's the God of all nations. He is in complete control of every nation, every tribe, every people, every clan, every family, and every individual. And many of you guys know that I I love and I prefer to read from the English Standard Version of the Bible, the ESV. But I wanted to share from you what the New American Standard Bible says. Uh, has to say about verse 5. I love the way it words verse 5. Malachi 5.5 in the New American Standard says, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. I love that word magnified. That this will be the prayer and cry of his people, that God's name, who God is, will be magnified. Now, when we say magnified, we don't mean magnifying like uh, a microscope, where you take something that is very small and make it look bigger. We mean magnify like a telescope, a telescope that takes something that's far off, that is extremely big, make it look more like how it actually is. 
So when we say magnify God, we're not saying God is really small and we need to put this magnifying glass over him to make him look better than he is. We're saying we magnify God. We're trying to show who God is for who he really is. To show his greatness, his fullness, his glory, his supremacy as what it really is. That his name will be magnified. That's what we're getting at. That's what we mean. Because God is ultimately committed to protecting and displaying his, his name, his glory, his magnification. That's what he says in Isaiah 48. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For my sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. Behold, I have refined you not as silver, and I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is ultimately committed to the glory of his name and to seeing it be magnified. And, and this is, should be the cry of his people. As we respond in obedience to him, we will be reflecting him. We will be being about the same thing that he is about, his glory, magnifying God. This should be our response this morning as we experience and see and delight and understand God's love, that we will turn to God and, and glorify him and seek to magnify him in our life, with our time, with our words, with our money, with our relationships. Everything in our life should be magnifying God. But what if you hear this morning and that's not where you're at? God, I don't want to magnify your name. I like my name. Wow, nice. God, I want to be great. I want to make my name great. And we might not say this explicitly. Well, we, we might live like this. What if we're here this morning and we're just, we're like the Israelites, where we're there at. We're here this morning and we're questioning, God, do you love me? How have you loved me, God? We're here this morning and we're discouraged, you're questioning, you're doubting. I don't know about you, but the sad reality in my life is that my joy and my delight and my desire to magnify God is so wavering. Up and down. My joy is so quickly robbed. My joy is often placed in people and feelings and circumstances that I'll be happy when they go my way. I have a bad day, something doesn't go my way. Someone lets me down, a circumstance lets me down. There goes my joy. I have a good day, things go my way. Someone compliments me. Man, Daniel, best sermon ever today. So good. Yeah, man, I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna have a jacked week. Someone says, oh, Daniel, you're, uh, you started off all right. Your sermon got really boring. I started checking Facebook. Uh, come on. You didn't bring your A game today. Why am I even doing this? <laughs> Man, I can see the looks on your faces. You guys are not here. I can see it in your eyes. I feel down. 
Is this the case in your life? Your joy is so quickly robbed. You start questioning and doubting God's love when things don't go your way and you have a bad day. What do we do? How do we grow and establish ourselves in this rock-solid foundation so that God might be glorified and that we might be full of joy in God? We have to come to the gospel. We have to come to Jesus. We have to center ourselves in the gospel. We have to seek to make the gospel functional in our life. Something that we base our identity in, not something up here, this kind of theological or theoretical thing, this thing that just kind of saved us, this little thing that we believe that now we're saved but doesn't really affect our life. We have to root ourselves in the gospel, in, in Christ. We have to continually come back to it and return to believe and understand and appreciate God's love for us more fully. So I think Malachi is getting at this. I think we have to get at this morning. And note too that as, as we're even preaching through the Old Testament, we're preaching through Malachi, ultimately this is accomplished. This comes true. This foreshadows Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Therefore, when we preach all of scripture, we, we preach Jesus. How is this about Jesus? Not only does Malachi 1, 1 through 5 show his love for Israel or his people, but it shows his love for the church, for Christians, and ultimately comes true in Christ. When you ask yourself the question, God, how have you loved us? God, do you love me? You look at the cross. Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, for God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You don't ever move on from this. You never move past this. You move deeper into this. Do you want to know how much God loves you? Are you questioning that this morning? Come to the cross. Kneel at the feet of Jesus. See how much God loves you. If you ask the question, God, do you love me? God, how have you loved me? The worst thing you can do is look inside yourself. The worst thing you can do is look to uh, what, what is inside. Because when we do that, one of two things will happen. One, we'll either get self-exalting. We'll look inside and get puffed up. Or two, we'll look inside and, and get self-detrimental. We'll kind of, man, I'm scum. Kicking myself when I'm down. One pastor said this, so many people in the relationship with God have a mirror and they're constantly looking at themselves. God, do you love me? One person looks in the mirror and they say, of course he does. I'm better than that person. <laughs> look at how good I look. That's the one response. Or the opposite. God, do you love me? You look in the mirror. Of course not. I'm wretched. I'm ugly. How could God love someone like me? If we are rooting self in the gospel and we ask this question, God, how have you loved us? God, do you love me? We'll throw down the mirror.
will shatter the mirror. We will look at Christ. We will look at the cross. We will realize that nothing that we have done or can do will earn God's love for us. That there is nothing good in us that will level our pride. But at the same time, it will, it will exalt us because God wants us. He loved us. As wretched and as ugly as we are, God loves us. And we look at the Christ and we look at the cross, we see that we only can receive God's love. So know, Christian, this morning, that if you are in Christ, that if you believe the gospel, God loves you. His love is set on you because of the cross. And I pray that this love will transform and motivate us in our worship, in our life, in our relationships, in our work, in our witness, in our family. It will shape everything that we do. I wanted to read the rest of that passage I read earlier, Romans 5, 6 through 11. Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And I love verse 11. I picked up on this a couple days ago. More than that, more than that, we can rejoice in God. What does an understanding of God's love do? It's to joy. It leads to rejoicing. More than that, we can rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. With this understanding, we magnify God. With this identity, this root, this motivation, this fuel, we glorify God. We seek to live out what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. Everything we do, whether we eat or drink, is all for the glory of God. Man, I would love to say that. God, would you show yourself, would you reveal your love to me more deeply? Would you reveal your love to us more deeply that we would be transformed and be filled with more joy than we ever thought was possible? That we might glorify God above all things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for Malachi. For this section that we have just gone through. Father, you, you not only have shown your love through us in your grace and dealings with our forefathers, but ultimately you showed that love for us on the cross. The Father, while we were dead in our sins, that while we were corpses, that while we were enemies of you, you died for us. Would we never become callous of this? Father, I pray now for those who are callous to this. Even as I, as I preach this message, it's falling on deaf ears. 
It's falling on ears that do not believe the word. Would our faith not be based on our feelings? But on your word. Would we continue as a church, as, as a people of God, con- to come back to the gospel? Would we come back to the scriptures to shape us and to inform us? And as Father, as we, as we seek to do this, as we seek to root ourselves deeper and deeper into yourself, into Christ, into your love, would this transform us? Father, I pray for those in this room now who have had hard weeks. Father, I feel a, a weight in this room right now, a discouragement. Would you lift us up? Would you remind us of your love? Father, through, through your word, through singing to you, would you warm our hearts to you? That we would seek to be satisfied in you. That we would know that we run after anything else, approval of man, success, comforts, security, it would fall short to the life, the peace that comes from knowing you and being in you. Father, would you be glorified now as we respond in song to you and as we remember what you've done for us on the cross through, uh, through eating and drinking together. In your son's name I pray, amen. Well, every week we remember uh, the gospel through something that's called the Lord's Supper, through communion. It's something that we do to remind us of the truths of the gospel. As we come forward and we hear the words of the gospel, we take the cracker, the bread, which represents the body of Christ, Christ's body given for you. And as we dip the cracker in the cup, we hear the words of the gospel, Christ's blood shed for you. As we dip it in the cup, it reminds us of the, the blood that forgives us that we are now sons and daughters, that we are children of God, freely and completely accepted and loved in him. As we come to eat together and drink together, uh, we do this as a time to uh, confess and repent of any uh, hard-heartedness, sin in our life, of of things that we have put our hope in, of, of lies that we have believed instead of the gospel. We do this in a time to celebrate and worship God for the cross, but we also do so with anticipation, knowing that one day we all, as God's people, will eat together in in a feast where we will be with Jesus completely and perfectly in a world of no sin, in a world of no death, where all things will be made right, where we'll be in perfect fellowship with one another and with God in paradise. So if you are a believer, the, the table's open. We ask that you eat at your own pace. You come to us, you come forward at your own pace. If you, however, are not a believer, if you do not trust and treasure Christ, we ask that you refrain, that you think about words that are spoken on, or words that are written out on uh, a handout that's out on the bar, or you reflect on the words that have just been spoken or the words that will be singing together. And that if you have any questions about Jesus, you want to learn more about this love that transforms everything, I'd, I'd love to talk with you about it. So the table's now open. Please come at your own pace.